Greetings. You're listening to the 51st episode of the ABF Journal podcast. I'm Phil Neifer, Managing Editor of ABF Journal. Ted Koenig, CEO of Monroe Capital, returned for his second appearance for this episode, which focused on the private markets and why they've remained more stable than the public markets during the COVID-19 pandemic. We also dove into some of the other trends and factors affecting alternative asset classes. So let's get right to the call. Hey, Ted, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you very much. Great. And today we have a lot to talk about, so we can just get right into it. Can you tell me about why you think the private markets have provided more stability than public markets during the COVID-19 pandemic um, from the perspective of both uh, institutional investors and borrowers? Sure, sure. Private markets are uh, not actively traded. Uh, There's no mark-to-market daily activity. So when their experiences a disruption, there's no panic selling. Uh, private market owners of assets are, have generally a buy and hold mentality. What it allows um, investors to do is uh, it allows them time to evaluate investments, validate plans, and put forth strategies to maximize value. There's no leveraged for selling um, like there is with hedge funds, uh, mark-to-market um, debt facilities that force banks to liquidate assets. Um, what happens is borrowers get more certainty. Um, borrowers have the ability then to speak to, um, analyze, negotiate with their lenders um, without the regulatory um, risk or hammer over their heads that requires abrupt action. Um, that's why I think private markets are more stable and we'll continue to see uh, an, a private markets option for what historically was um, public market type uh, debt investments in the past. And during this, this period, what are some of the key ways uh, lenders have been successful in separating themselves from the pack? You know, that's a good question. I think patience is really the key attribute here. I think lenders have, uh, have taken a long-term view as opposed to what banks have done in other uh, crises. You know, if you look at COVID, which is an excellent example of, a, uh, of, of kind of the perfect storm, where businesses closed, uh, businesses stopped um, seeing revenues, cash flow earnings. Um, what lenders were allowed to do uh, in the private markets areas work with uh, their partners, companies, um, sponsor equity groups, uh, reset covenants, provide relief extensions reschedule interest or principal to the extent it was necessary. Um, That's really what I think has separated the the lender borrower relationship at this juncture versus past crises like the financial crisis where um, banks were willy nilly closing down credit facilities, shutting off access to credit. Um, Here, companies um, and I'd like to think Monroe Capital is one of them with good track records, have actually grown. Um, this process has allowed uh, companies like ours and others to grow. We were able to raise more capital. 
We're able to open new strategies, send um, seed new product development. Uh, for example, we started a software lending business, a technology lending business, a real estate lending business. We've added uh, a bunch of expertise uh, with new hires. And um, you know, those are the types of things that firms that were lucky enough to be in a, in a good position with a good track record and a stable balance sheet, you know, were able to um, separate themselves, I think, from the, from the pack uh, in this period of time. Right, and then you've mentioned how the private markets have been kind of resilient during the pandemic, um, but I know you're also optimistic about them going forward. Can you tell me why that is? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of optimism about private markets in general. Um, uh, if you look at the growth trend uh, for institutional investors, alternative assets have been the fastest growing area uh, in the last 10 years. And within that, private credit has been the fastest growing area of alternative assets. Um, low interest rates have certainly contributed to that. Um, we've had a lot of wind at our backs, uh, pension funds, uh, endowments, foundations, universities, uh, hospitals have all needed return to pay their bills. And um, private credit and uh, some alternative assets, you know, have been have generated stable, secure, efficient, and reliable returns. Um, stability, predictability, and reliability are the key watchwords for institutional investors. And with the chaos in much of the world and low interest rates, this has been the one safe place in a storm that investors uh, you know, could look to over the last 10 years. And then you mentioned that uh, private credit has been a particularly attractive alternative asset class. Um, why is that gained popularity versus traditional fixed income? And are there some other uh, alternative asset classes that have kind of kept in step with private credit, or maybe they're not as popular, but I've, I've picked up some steam recently? I think the number one answer is low interest rates. Low interest rates have pushed investors uh, away from traditional private credit, uh, like uh, traditional bonds. I mean, it used to be that institutional investors made up 50 to 60% of their portfolio with um, long-term bonds. You know, when the, when the US 10-year treasury is trading at around 100 basis points and the German bond and Japanese bonds and Korean bonds are trading at zero or less than zero, uh, institutional investors need to go somewhere. And zero interest rates and negative interest rates have forced them into looking at alternatives and identifying which of those alternatives you know, provide the stability, safety, predictability, and reliability. And uh, you know, all roads have pointed to, to private credit over the last 10 years. Um, high net worth retail investors have just figured this out. Uh, we're seeing alternatives now being placed in portfolios of high net worth and retail investors through their uh, registered investment advisors. You know, there, there's been a place now uh, within this asset class that's been allocated uh, to those types of investors, which is going to continue to open up this market and continue to grow the popularity of alternatives. Um, particularly, you know, private credit. I think we're seeing real estate as another asset class continue to be popular. Uh, infrastructure is another asset class 
And we're just starting to see the early seeds of a new asset class, and that's cryptocurrency. Um, there's a, uh, I think, a, a curiosity among investors, institutional investors, whether this is going to be safe, predictable, and reliable. And you know, to date, um, there's a lot of discussion about it, but you know, it hasn't proven yet to be um, stable or predictable or reliable. So until that happens, uh, I think that we're going to see people dabble in and out of it, but it's not going to be a serious uh, investment asset class. And then you mentioned that uh, you know, high net worth investors are starting to come into this space. Um, how is that impacting um, the private credit um, as well as the entrance of things like mutual funds, things like that? Th think of it as adding gasoline to a fire. You know, there's a tidal wave of new money coming into the space. We're seeing it, you know, with our own funds. Uh, we have funds that are designated and specifically established for individuals. Uh, they have very low minimums. Uh, people can come into those funds at a, a fifty or seventy-five thousand dollar investment. It pays about a nine percent return. Um, that's a heck of a better alternative um, than investing in bonds or. Uh, large corporate debt that you know is paying 100 to 300 basis points. Um, we're seeing more and more um, mid-aged groups of people in their 40s and 50s um, moving into private credit um, for the return aspects. Um, I think that you'll continue to see high net worth investors, individuals, working people, professionals invest in this asset class, just like the institutional investors did 10, 15 years ago, um, because they're seeking the exact same thing, which is predictable and safe, reliable returns. And what are some of the large-scale large, large scale, uh, economic factors that may influence the public and or private uh, markets the rest of this year and early next year? Obviously, the pandemic is still going to play some sort of role, but um, what are some other factors? And you can tie in the pandemic as much as you want. And then how should investors prepare for those kind of those changes? Uh, good question. I think that the number one factor you're seeing right now is a disruption in the supply chain. You know, if you want to uh, buy an automobile, build a house, um, purchase an appliance, bicycle, if you need raw materials, steel, aluminum, copper, uh, lumber, we're paying a lot more for all of these um, goods and services than we did at any time in, in, in my recent memory. Um, the supply chain right now is broken. COVID had something to do with it. I think that overseas challenges, relationships have had something to do with it. Uh, we're seeing uh, lack of an ability to move containers right now. We're seeing ports backed up. We're seeing shipments delayed and it's causing a, a, a problem, you know, not only for our economy, but for the world's economy. Uh, so I think that's probably the number one economic factor that I'm seeing as a, uh, as a potential risk. Number two is uh, inflation. You know, we haven't really known inflation for the last 12 to 15 years as a country, but because of supply chain disruption and, and wage 
um, issues right now. Um, we're seeing a, a lot of demand for minimum wage increases, $15, $20 an hour. We're seeing companies do it. We're seeing companies doing everything they can to be able to attract and retain employees, whether it's investment banks, law firms, or restaurants. They all have a common denominator issue, which is um, lack of an ability to identify and uh, retain employees. Uh, that's, I guess, number two. Number three is probably taxation. Uh, we're about, to, we're in a period of uncertainty. Our, our, our uh, Washington is telling us that be prepared for income tax increases, for capital gains increases, but yet that's going to be a fight. Um, there's no certainty that that's going to exist, but I will tell you that companies are acting and businesses are acting as if that's going to happen. There's a lot more activity. There's a lot more rush to get deals done. Um, so I would say prepare for it, diversify uh, your portfolio, investment portfolios, hold alternative assets that are um, not liquidly, liquid or publicly traded or actively traded. Those assets are going to uh, tend to get hit um, sooner and harder than private assets. Look for things that are inflation protected. Look for things that um, I think will go up in value over time, irrespective of uh, and protect against inflation. I think cash is going to be a bad investment uh, for the next year to two. Um, I think when you have periods of inflation, you know, cash is a devaluing investment. And I think that that's part of the reason why the, the stock market has been moving higher and will continue to move higher is that there's been a fair amount of cash on the sidelines and that cash is starting to get invested. And are there any other sources of volatility you, you see and expecting for public and or private markets in the next year or so? I mean, you've given us kind of pretty in-depth uh, look at a few of them from an economic point of view, but are there any others? Yeah, I think there's two major um, other issues that are hard to handicap. Number one is geopolitical issues. We have a heck of a lot of, of, of chaos in the world today. There are more world hotspots today than any time I can remember. I mean, just what's happening in Afghanistan um, you know, was unheard of in terms of thought process 90 days ago or six months ago. So um, you know, at any given point in time, one of these flashpoints, particularly the Mideast could erupt. You know, Lebanon is, is seeing, you know, unprecedented uh, inflation and products, material and food shortages. You know, Syria, uh, Iraq are, are in the same position, but worse. So I, I think we're going to continue to see um, geopolitical risk. Uh, that's, that's kind of my first concern. And number two is I'm concerned about the U.S. politics. Um, We've gone through a, a period of time here over the last four years uh, with the prior administration and others that have created a raw and divisive environment. I think that foreign nationals have had a, a, a big part in this as well in feeding the flames and fanning the flames here. But we've got to get our own house in order. You know, we're doing more damage internally with all this mask mandates and politicizing the health and welfare 
of, of people in our economy. Um, it, this was unheard of 20 years ago. And unfortunately, we're in a period of time here that it seems that everyone's vying for attention and uh, airtime. And unfortunately, the most um, disfavorable and um, unfortunate ideas are the ones that are being communicated the loudest. So I, I think those are the two things that concern me the most right now that are, I call not economic factors, more, uh, more other, other concerns. Right, and then kind of just looking at Monroe Capital specifically, um, how have you guys fared this year? And then I know we kind of talked about private markets more in general, but just curious about how you guys have been doing this year and how you expect to close out the year. Well, I'll, I'll give you a couple of statistics and then I'll make a comment. So in a typical year, we'll do 50 to 60 deals per year. That's an active year for Monroe Capital. Um, in 2021, in the first six months, we did 49 deals. We're on pace to do 100 deals uh, in 2021. A typical year for us, we'll put three to three and a half billion dollars in the ground in new investments. In the first six months of 2021, we put about two and a half billion dollars in the ground. We're on pace for a five billion dollar year. Uh, we've had a record amount of fundraising this year. Um, I think we'll grow our assets in terms of new fundraise dollars by over $3 billion. So 2021 was a good year by all, by all accounts. Uh, we've been able to hire uh, a bunch of superstars over the last six months in, in our high net worth uh, retail sales efforts and our insurance product. Uh, development and sales efforts. We opened an office in Asia, in Seoul, Korea. Uh, we hired a new head of corporate strategy and product development. We brought someone in um, from a large insurance company uh, to help us run our high net worth and retail investment business. So 2021 already was a very good year for Monroe Capital. And I see the next six months uh, in the same light with continued activity, uh, continued growth. And you know we're going to continue to be responsive to the needs of our borrowers and to our investor LPs. Awesome. Well, Ted, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Uh, it was really good to, to catch up and um, hope uh, you, know, you have a good rest of the year. Thank you very much. That will do it for this week. I want to thank Ted again for joining the show and thank you for listening to the ABF Journal podcast. We'll talk again soon.